Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. To keep up with all the content and subscribe to my flagship newsletter, please visit themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I am back from vacation. We had a great time. We went out east, uh, did a driving trip, went to New York City, got to see the old neighborhood. In fact, that's the first time we'd been back to New York since we left uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, I would have assumed I would have made a trip back to New York uh, prior prior to now, but because of the pandemic, it just didn't turn out that way. Then we also went up to New England, had a good time. So uh, thanks for giving me the week off. I really appreciate it. I wanted to give you all a heads up that I am probably going to be implementing some rebranding and realignment of the content that I'm doing. So I'm not going to stop doing anything. I'm not really going to change per se what I'm doing, but I may be doing a little realignment of it. You know, when I first started the podcast and the YouTube show, I originally was thinking I was going to brand it something other than the masculinist. Because if you think about the masculinist, yes, it still has the men's issue focus. I talk a lot about that. But I also talk a lot about other issues uh, as well. You know, this, the, the podcast is the history of conservatism, or I'll do something on own space, or the positive, neutral, negative world. And so when I started the podcast, I said, you know what, I need to call it something other than the masculinist because it's going to have a broader focus. And interestingly, you know, I got a ton of feedback from people who said, don't do that. The masculinist is your brand. We love it. And so I kept it as the masculinist. But now I think I am going to make some changes. In part, I will probably be taking some of the, call it church strategy, cultural diagnostics material and moving it over to American Reformer. Now that American Reformer is up and running as a, you know, really nonprofit and a journal uh, focused on the Protestant church and the world we're in, I'm probably going to be moving some things over there. Certainly, we'll make sure that you continue to get notified through the weekly uh, digest of all that stuff. Uh, so don't think you're going to lose out, even if you don't want to subscribe to that. I'll make sure you get it. But I may be doing that. And then I'm probably also going to like rebrand the some things. I think the podcast to be the first one I rebrand because I might just call it the Aaron Wren podcast. It really is just me sort of giving my takes on things. And it isn't really, most of it, frankly, isn't related to, to men's issues. And, and so I think I'm going to be doing a little of that. So I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to do, but I wanted to give you a heads up so that if one day you come in and, you know, the, the podcast is rebranded, you'll know what happened. And I'll try to keep you in, keep you in the loop on that. Also got some interesting feedback from someone uh, about my last episode on complementarianism and Mark Driscoll. He's like, I'm having trouble understanding what the relationship between complementarian theology and Mark Driscoll is. And, you know, when I say that complementarianism is implicated by Mark Driscoll, what I mean by that is not that the theology is implicated, but more that it's sociologically implicated. So let me give you a, a parallel example, although obviously a much more extreme case, and that's the Catholic Church abuse scandals. Does that reflect on the Catholic Church? Yeah, you better believe it does. It certainly reflects very badly on the Catholic Church and, you know, discredits them, you know, in, in important ways. Now, is that scandal directly related to any particular aspect of Catholic theology, or does it discredit the theology? Does it mean the theology is not true? Not directly, but when you see that the leadership of you know the church has kind of been implicated and involved in all this and covering it up, yeah, it makes them look bad. And the same thing is true with Mark Driscoll and complementarianism. You know, when this guy's plugged in with the who's who, platformed by the who's who of complementarianism, and all this stuff goes wrong, 
it certainly reflects poorly on the movement and, you know, certainly should ask, cause people to think, what else might be wrong with this? There was another episode while I was on vacation, listened to it in the car uh, of the Marcel podcast, and it was really about Joshua Harris. It was just an episode talking about Joshua Harris. And I have to say, the episode was, quite frankly, terrible. And I thought it was very, uh, you know, frankly, almost inappropriate and, you know, very unreflective on the on the part of Christianity today. Uh, you know, for example, they're kind of complaining or talking about, you know, celebrity culture and how Joshua Harris uh, was, you know, a product of that, involved in that, still living like that. And yet they're treating him like a celebrity, <laughs> Right? By platforming him, they're the ones treating him like a celebrity. There's no reflection on their own role in celebrity culture. I mean, they are the media after all. And I think this shows a pattern. They've been a little friendly, I think, to the ex-evangelical movement. And the other thing that they really failed on is they did not ask the obvious question, which is, what role did sexual sin play in his divorce and his decision to leave Christianity? You know, he wrote the book on purity culture and marriage and all that, and then he gets divorced. So what happened in his divorce? You know, I think somebody, I think it was Michael Foster made the observation that in a high percentage of these ex-evangelical cases that he knows, uh, some form of sexual sin that people wanted to continue to embrace uh, played some role in this. And, you know, Harris even, uh, you know, when he, he, basically rejected Christianity. He came out and posted these pictures of himself, I think, at the Vancouver Pride Parade, and he was sort of flirting with the idea that he might be gay. Um, whether he is or not, I, I don't know, or quite frankly, really care. But at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions about his own personal life and what's going on with him, and especially when the fact that he got divorced. And it's a little mysterious why they got divorced. And I'm like, yeah, I think there's some investigation that should have been done into that. When you look at the drilling that they did into Mark Driscoll, um, and, you know, some of the things that went on with that church. Why isn't there any investigation in what was going on in this process? It seems that the the narrative was just accepted, and there was very little, um, you know, in the way of, of challenging questions at all, I thought, on that. So I would give this episode a very bad mark. They should have just kept to the Mark Driscoll stuff, which is actually pretty good. A couple recent incidents uh, caused me to think about what I'd talk about this week in terms of collapse. You know, Mars Hill Church suffered a spontaneous and fairly rapid collapse. You know, is this a church that probably a year before it went down may have seemed like a juggernaut in a lot of ways. They were expanding, they were growing, they were adding campuses, they were doing this global thing, it was all going on, and then all of a sudden, poof, it went down. And then while I was on vacation, we also saw that you know, the United States withdrew from Afghanistan, and essentially immediately the government that we had installed there collapsed. And now the last American troops have left Kabul, and the country is completely run by the Taliban. And it seemed to have almost happened almost instantly. And it's pretty amazing that many things that seem on the surface to be very strong and very powerful sometimes collapse unexpectedly, when nobody's really expecting it. They might look obvious in retrospect. Oh, yeah, of course they were going to collapse. But prospectively, few people were predicting it. I think about the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Nobody saw that coming. I mean, 
during the Reagan administration, it's like, oh, we're going to have a you know, nuclear war. It's, it's these two major titan empires facing off against each other. And then the Soviet Union essentially just collapses. Kind of crazy. And it made me wonder the, to start asking the question, what about America? What about the American regime? Will the American regime collapse like one of these things at some point? And there are two, I think, ways that we tend to think about America. Uh, one, I think, has kind of been the natural default state of Americans is to always think of America as the top dog and destined to stay so forever. I mean, that's kind of me, you know, I mean, like, if you'd asked me, you know, 10, 15 years ago, can you Im- even imagine somebody displacing the United States and the United States collapsing? I, I would have thought it was crazy. We just don't think about that, right? This has been the country of grow, grow, grow. Uh, of, you know, op- optimism, etc. It just is the idea that America might suffer some collapse or even some, you know, decline like England did, which went from an empire basically to this kind of rump island state, just hasn't really been something that we've thought that much about. And then on the other hand, there's a uh, school of thought that is mostly on kind of called the new right, that the American regime is going to fall. This thing has just gotten so crazy. Yes, we could handle a little talk about high tax rates. We could handle it. But now, you know, they've pushed the crazy button so far that this just can't go on. And, you know, this regime is brittle and it's just going to, reality is going to reassert itself. And, you know, soon this thing will just fall on its own. And I've often seen this as a variation of how political conservatives talk about how the market will discipline people. You know, companies that don't perform will end up losing market share, they'll go out of business, etc. Uh, you know, governments who don't govern well, the people will leave, people will vote with their feet, the businesses, etc. There's this idea that they have that the market will simply impose discipline on people who do things that they don't like, basically, because they, you know, flatter themselves on having the truth. And so I think that's an almost passive approach because in a lot of ways, just as this idea that the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, you know, I'm here from the I'm for the government and I'm here to help. That was Ronald Reagan's famous quip. Just as that sort of absolves conservatives from having to govern, this idea that the marketplace will impose discipline kind of absolves conservatives from really doing anything to bring about the kinds of change and reform uh, that they want to see, because, you know, reality will just do that for them. You know, now, I think that future matters like these are pretty impossible to predict in advance. Again, they often look obvious in retrospect, but they're just impossible to predict. Personally, I think the American regime looks very strong. I don't see any signs of a collapse. In fact, the ruling class in America, if you want to call them that, seem more powerful than ever. And I think there's maybe less genuine internal dissent uh, among the genuine elites than I've, I've really maybe ever seen in my lifetime. Now, I do think America, the uh, the globalist American empire, as Darren Bates likes to call it, has peaked and gone into decline. You know, we've seen um, critical flaws, I think, in a number of areas. One is stagnating living standards. Uh, really, you know, real, that is to say, inflation-adjusted, you know, median household income, really has been stagnant uh, or even declining for a lot of people uh, for a long time. You know, we pump people's, uh, you know, bank accounts full of stimulus money, so incomes look pretty good last year. But but the truth is, we really haven't had the kinds of rising living standards uh, 
that we we like to to think we have. And so that that sort of forward motion has kind of uh, gone into decline. You know, we also have more, um, you know, what I call transparent authoritarianism. There's way more, um, this is the way it's going to be, and if you go against what we want, then you're going to be crushed. We see this in cancel culture and things like that, for example. Whereas it used to be, like back in the 80s, you know, there was a book by, um, it may have been actually written in the 90s, I can't remember exactly it was written, um, by Herman and Chomsky called Manufacturing Consent. And it was this idea that, you know, the media and, um, you know, the kind of the elites of society were able to create this sort of consensus view that's then presented as if it is the the broad mainstream thought of society. And that sort of gives a legitimacy to the decisions that, you know, the government makes. Well, now we know. They don't care what you think. It's like, you're going to do what we tell you to do. We're, we're going to, we're going to, if you don't, we'll, uh, you know, we'll deplatform you. We'll kick you off social media. We'll start implementing this vaccine passport. We're going to, you know, f- do these mandates. You're going to be forced to toe the line. And I think it's becoming much m- more difficult for people to pretend that America is still this, you know, free democratic society where decisions are sort of made, uh, you know, through three process of public consent and all that. Again, we see it in the way people talk about things like Afghanistan, where, you know, you look at the public and it's pretty popular, even with all the debacles of the withdrawal to, to get out of Afghanistan. And and yet the, the kind of the leadership class of America, the foreign policy establishment, military establishment, are four square opposed to it, totally opposed to it. And you're not going to hear a lot of people uh, on the TV, he's talking about, yeah, we had to get out of there, right? So if you look at it, I was just talking to a reporter from a major publication yesterday, and she was saying, like, wow, this is actually great that we're now seeing these media, big newspapers are, you know, challenging Biden for the very first time instead of just sucking up to them. And my response was, yeah, because he's getting out of Afghanistan. They don't like that. The one time they liked Trump was when he bombed Syria. And so there's this interventionist view run by a sort of you know, self-appointed, self-perpetuating elite that has sucked all the oxygen out of the room and they've they've sort of made it. You know, frankly, only by, you know, Biden really took massive amount of heat to go against that. And it's pretty amazing. But, you know, he was the president, so he had the authority to do it. You and I don't have the authority to go against, you know, the leadership class when they they deliver a new party line. I think now people know, right, that there is essentially dictates you are expected to um, comply with. And that has also led to a tremendous decline in moral authority abroad. We've already seen multiple people, multiple people that we would classify as dictators, you know, throw our own behavior uh, back in our face. So there's an interview, I think it was with the uh, president of Azerbaijan or something like that. He's been interviewed by the BBC and this BBC reporter, she's challenging, you know, him on human rights or whatever. He goes, turns around, says, well, what are you doing to Julian Assange? Why aren't you releasing Julian Assange? Aren't you persecuting journalists? And, you know, she got f- flustered and this and that. But he's like, look, look what you're doing. And again, the Taliban, you know, they had a little news conference and said, hey, you're going to critique us for what we're doing? Well, what about Facebook censorship? <laughs> they brought up, people are going to do that. And I think that, um, you know, more and more people are getting that the United States uh, no longer has the moral authority it used to have because of the way that it has, in fact, diminished freedoms at home. And that's going to cause profound problems. I mean, if I were, for example, the president of an African country, I would probably go to China 
And I would say, look, I want to sign an exclusive deal with you for internet technology. We'll, you know, use the Huawei equipment. We'll use WeChat and all the social media platforms in China. We're going to give you an exclusive and we're going to kick out Facebook. We're going to kick out Twitter. We're going to kick out Google because those companies are instruments of American foreign policy aggression against us. What I want to do is, yeah, you're, yeah, I would happily let you censor anything you want when we're talking about China or Xi Jinping, but you give us the censorship tools when it comes to our own country, and we make all the deplatforming and censorship uh, decisions locally as a government here. That is going to have to become an appealing point of view uh, for other people. And now we see, you know, you know, India is already looking at developing indigenous technologies. Russia is developing more indigenous technologies. Um, if the EU was smart, they'd have developed more indigenous technology. So I think more and more people are going to look to wean themselves off of American infrastructure. And, you know, they're not going to just take the lectures that we used to give anymore um, because, you know, they're going to look and say, look, you guys uh, don't have, you guys don't live what you're, you don't practice what you're preaching anymore. And, and so I, I do think there are these sorts of um, sorts of things that are going wrong. I also think we seem to be run by incompetence who can't really do anything right. But nevertheless, I don't think that these fundamentally make America look like it's going to collapse anytime soon. I mean, I think this thing can go on for a long, long time. Adam Smith famously said, there's a lot of ruin in a nation, and things can go on much longer than anybody thinks they possibly can. And not only that, you know, cycles change. Sometimes things just reverse spontaneously for no obvious reason. If you'd gone back to America in the 70s, people would have said it was over then. And all of a sudden in the 80s, things changed. I've been rereading some of the 90s populist literature from people like Kevin Phillips and Arthur Schlesinger and, um, you know, even like Robert Reich, people like that. And it's amazing that between 1990 and 1995, all of the rhetoric about America was pretty much exactly the same as it's been the last four or five years. And all that populist energy just ended up dissipating. And here we are again. I feel like it's Groundhog Day. If you read Arthur Schlesinger's Disuniting of America, uh, you know, he's talking about the problems of multiculturalism. And it is exactly like the debates over critical race theory in school, only in his case, he's talking about Afrocentric curriculums. So there's nothing new under the sun here. And, you know, these things come, they go, populism kind of comes, it wanes. And so the idea that there's some inevitability here, I don't think. And again, things can just go on so long, you'd think, how is that possible? So Time Magazine wrote a huge article, landmark article, uh, about the problems in Detroit in 1960, right? So we think about all the problems that Detroit had, maybe America's most troubled big city in a lot of ways, and yet it did not go bankrupt until 2013. And to be quite honest, even then, it didn't sort of naturally go bankrupt. The governor of the state decided we're going to lance the boil here and I'm going to force them into bankruptcy. So he essentially did that. Probably Detroit would not have gone bankrupt. Uh, you know, this this idea of uh, fiscal discipline is one that I always kind of like, um, you know, kind of laugh at now. You know, uh, conservatives have been saying for the longest time, all this debt, all this spending, it's totally unsustainable. Well, other than Detroit, which again, a Republican governor forced into bankruptcy, what states and cities of any significant size have run into some fiscal crisis genuinely, right? We haven't. I mean, you go back to the 80s and the 90s and all this talk about the deficit and the debt. If you had told those people 
By the way, in 2021, we're going to have a debt of $29 trillion, a debt-to-GDP ratio of $128. You're going to be Italy or Greece. People would say, oh, America was going to collapse. We'd have hyperinflation. And yet, we still have ultra-low interest rates. And, you know, people talk about Illinois. Oh, Illinois pensions. Illinois is going to go bankrupt. Well, I think Illinois just got a credit upgrade. You know, Illinois is not going to go broke anytime soon. So I think you have to look at some of these things that, you know, this idea that, again, the idea that market discipline is going to cause some change just does not seem to be the case, at least not over any sort of time horizon that we have. And so if, if you're a conservative who's always been concerned about fiscal issues, you know, I challenge you to rethink it, right? Think about the levels of debt and things that have been taken on and what you would have predicted would have come true. It just, frankly, it didn't. And so, um, you, you know, Joel Kotkin, who's a buddy of mine, very, very well known at Sentence, he's got this idea. He's like, you know, I, I underestimated the power of inertia. And he was talking about, you know, earlier, he thought, well, you know, there might be all this dynamic disruption of a city like London. London might fall as a, you know, global financial center. In fact, London has proven remarkably stable, just as New York has proven remarkably stable. You know, there is a tremendous power of uh, inertia. And so I think we would really be uh, doing ourselves a disservice if we sort of assume negative trends around us imply some inevitable problems. And in fact, go back and look at all the predictions of catastrophe that didn't come through. I think we'd be very cautious, and you know, I got, I'm preaching to myself here, about making catastrophic predictions about the future with any degree of certainty when there's just so much uncertainty. And so... That's not to say that these problems aren't real or could not cause a collapse. There's a famous line in Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises. Somebody asked the character, how did you go bankrupt? And he said two ways, gradually, then suddenly. You know, so sudden collapse, as we've seen, even with the Soviet Union, with Mars Hill, with Afghanistan, it is a real phenomenon. German cognitive psychologist Dietrich Dorner wrote a great book called The Logic of Failure. This is one you might want to read. It's a little dry, but the findings in here are really, really profound in talking about how human beings are extremely bad at decision-making in complex environments. And here's a quote from that book, what he had to say. He said, Catastrophes seem to hit suddenly, but in reality, the way has been prepared for them. Unperceived forces gradually eat away at the supports necessary for favorable development until the system is finally unable to resist any longer and collapses. So certainly collapse could come. Uh, if you want to actually read a very interesting uh, novel and just a great fun novel to read uh, about a U.S. collapse caused by a financial crisis, uh, read Lionel Shriver's book, The Mandibles. And I'll put a link to The Mandibles and A Logic of Failure in, in the show notes. Uh, you know, again, it could happen. Uh, I think we're well past our prime, you know, kind of as, as, the, as an America and a kind of empire here. But, you know, don't bet your life uh, on a collapse. Right? And don't assume that, like, the market or, or, or whatever to call it will just impose change. If you want change in this world, you better be taking real action to make it happen, not just assuming you're going to walk in to uh, pick up the pieces after, you know, some house of cards um, collapses or something like that. And I think, you know, I kind of go back to, uh, you know, a lot of Nassim Taleb's writing about decision-making under uncertainty. We don't know 
what's going to happen in the future. The future is vastly more uncertain. And so what we have to do is design our lives to the greatest extent possible to be uh, resilient or even anti-fragile to a wide range of outcomes and try to reduce the amount of fragility that we have uh, in important ways. So I, I think he's really interesting. It's an interesting compliment to Dorner uh, in a way, even though they don't um, have, any, they haven't ever interacted with each other so far as I know. So this is just some thoughts on the possibility of American collapse. Again, uh, if you have not yet left a rating on uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, please do so. We're closing in on 300. It would be, I think I have 293 this morning. It would be great to get up over 300. Uh, if we could do that, really appreciate it. The listens have been going up. Keep spreading the word. If you're not on the masculine email list, get on it. And again, stay tuned and watch out for the rebranding. And I will talk to you again next week.